So this morning is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and we recognize this important day each year, and we're going to do so again this morning. And so actually, I want to begin with a scripture reading uh, from Psalm 139, fitting text for the themes of this morning. So Psalm 139, and then we'll dive in a little bit shorter message, and then we're going to have a video testimony, um, actually from Laurie Chapman, I'll explain that a little bit more later, and then Rachel Metzger is going to share with us. She is the director of Adore of Hope, local crisis pregnancy centers here in Delaware, and we're thankful, glad to have her here with us. So, Psalm 139, if you're using a pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along in the pew Bible. It's on page 521. Psalm 139, I'm going to read that passage. It's not the text for this morning, but it's a helpful backdrop to the themes of this morning. Psalm 139, if you would stand with me in honor of God's word as we read this psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. You may be seated. So one of the 
One of the people that I look up to and deeply respect is a man named Russell Moore. Maybe some of you are familiar with him. He's an American theologian, ethicist, and preacher. Um, I've quoted him a number of times over recent years. And in June of 2021, he became the director of the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. He previously served as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the SBC. He's spoken powerfully to the sanctity of all human life over many years. And I want you to listen to this insightful quote from him as we get started here. I think it should be up on the screen. Any Christian witness that doesn't start and finish with the gospel is unspeakably cruel and, in fact, devilish. The devil works in two ways. By deception, you shall surely not die. You shall not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. And by accusation, Revelation 12, 10 says, he's the one who accuses them day and night before our God. So the devil wishes to assure some people that there's no need for repentance and others that there's no hope for mercy. Some people are deceived into thinking they're too good for the gospel while others are accused into thinking they're too bad for the gospel. No one is more pro-choice than the devil on the way into the abortion clinic. And no one is more pro-life than the devil on the way out of the abortion clinic. Wagging his finger. The gospel of Jesus Christ tears down both strategies. Do you see? That's just one example is in and out of the abortion clinic. But this is a devilish strategy. Deceive people into thinking that it's not wrong, it's not sin. There's no no consequences, no judgment. And then, as soon as they do, heap on the guilt. Wag the finger. Accuse and condemn. Think about the younger brother and the older brother. You'll really find joy just going away from the father. That's where real life is found. Or the older brother is right where the evil one wants him. Self-righteous. Not in need of entering the party. So it's as old as the garden. Licentiousness and legalism. Devil's behind both of those. So I actually thought it was Ray Ortland. I've kind of quoted him. I think he's referring to it in one of his books. But maybe the, orig- the, the origin of this sentence or phrase is Justin Taylor. The church should be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. I've said this many times in recent years. So I have two points um, this morning in this message. Um, Safe for sinners, not safe for sin. Pretty simple, okay? Pretty easy to follow. Then, like I said, video testimony and then Rachel's going to come up. So first point, the church must be a place that is safe for sinners. This is not always the reputation of the church, is it? Oftentimes it's the opposite. Tim Keller in in his book, Prodigal God, he writes this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. 
The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Or maybe it could be a little more nuanced. We might be declaring the same message, but we might be unsaying with our attitudes and our behavior what we say with our words and our creed. Peter did it. Remember Galatians 2? Had he thrown the gospel away, the gospel of grace, you know, for all peoples, when he withdrew from eating with people who weren't circumcised, you know? No, he, he was pressured into backing away. And he was a hypocrite to the gospel. Paul had to confront him. Like, yo, you used to eat with these Gentiles. Now you're not. What's going on? You're undermining the gospel. Had he changed his profession? No, but his behavior was undermining the gospel. So we can do the same thing. So we need to be reminded. And we need to pray that God will make us individually and corporately a place that's safe for sinners, just like Jesus. Okay, so we're going to look at a couple texts along these lines, the way Jesus operated. Look at Luke 5 first. So turn to Luke 5. It's going to be various texts this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. And let me just say before we read this that tax collectors in Jesus' day were despised. Okay? So they were in league with the oppressive Roman regime. You know, that the Jewish people were kind of under the thumb of Roman rule. And when you are poor and one of your own people partners with the enemy to squeeze an excessively burdensome amount of tax out of you, you're going to view them like a traitor, the traitor this, traitors that they are, okay? So that's the mindset toward tax collectors at the time, whether it's, you know, Zacchaeus or... Levi became one of Jesus' disciples, right? Matthew. And then there's Jesus with these tax collectors. So look at Luke 5, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners was kind of a technical term for people outside the covenant. They're unclean. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Gregory Nazianzen, he's a fourth century theologian, he wrote this, to blame Jesus for mingling with sinners would be like blaming a physician for associating closely with sick people. So flip a couple pages to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. 
one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I know this sounds weird to us, but dinner parties were more open in the first century so people could come in like this. Um, but again, it's shocking, scandalous. This woman, especially at his feet, kissing his feet. Does he know her? You know? kind of scandalous. So the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Obviously, he'd seen the woman. It's actually a very interesting question. Do you really see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. It's common courtesies. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss, you know, typical Middle Eastern culture. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, he doesn't say your love has made you, has saved you, right? Lest we misunderstand what Jesus said earlier, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And because of that faith, because she was so grateful for all of her sins forgiven, which were many, She's loving much. But Simon didn't think he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. Or if so, just a little. So following Jesus might keep you from some bad company, but he will also lead you to keep some pretty bad company. Becoming like Jesus might lead you to avoid some pretty bad people, fair enough. But it might also lead some pretty bad people to seek you out. May it be. <laughs> Do it, Lord. Would you want that to happen? I hope we would want that to happen. So one more. May we never become like the Pharisee. I'm just going to stay in the book of Luke here, but may we never become like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Losing sight of our need that only Jesus can meet. So Luke 18, 9 to 14. Probably familiar with this, but just hear it again. Listen, take it to heart. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those go together. Self-righteousness and looking down on other people go together. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, giving all the glory to God. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. It actually, in Greek, says, the sinner like I'm the worst of sinners. I tell you this man, this man, the second one, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus' church, if we follow him, if we become like him, must become a place that is safe for sinners. Let me just tease out one application here because we're talking about Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. There's countless applications, and I'd encourage you to discuss some of those countless applications, brainstorm other applications in your community group or over coffee with a friend, brother, sister this week. So let's say, Bethel family, let's say one of our teen girls gets pregnant out of wedlock. Would we throw her a shower? I've been in churches where Christian women didn't want to throw a shower because it could be seen to condone the sin. What do you think? I think that perspective is from the devil. What are you saying if you don't throw her a shower? And I'm saying even if she's like not totally turn the corner like even if she's not walking with Jesus still throw her a shower absolutely throw her a shower because if you don't you're saying you're not worthy of us giving you love and support do you want to say that so listen are we going to call someone that's part of our body whether integrally or kind of on the periphery we're going to call her to repentance and the dude too by the way Yes, just like all sinners need to repent. And let's be sure to get to heart-level issues and not just superficial behavioral fixes and mouthing the right words or whatever. But listen, here at Bethel, we're not going to change our beliefs on what the Bible says about sex and marriage, okay? We're not going to change. Sex is a good gift of God invented, created by him, and given as a good gift to one man and one woman who join together in covenantal union till death do they part. Full stop. I'm not going to change on that. So if we talk about throwing a shower for a girl who's pregnant out of wedlock, I've actually heard people wondering, this usually comes secondhand, but wondering if we've changed our beliefs. I've literally heard that more than once. No. (laughs) Why would you come to that conclusion? We're living in line with our beliefs that we follow the friend of sinners. Okay, so I'm not aiming this at anybody. What I'm saying is we need to be a place that's safe for sinners. Jesus was, and we're following him. 
So we believe, we'll always teach that sex, you know, it is the fire of God and designed to warm the house when it's kept in the fireplace of marriage. Amen. Outside of God's intended place, it burns things up and does damage. We're going to trust God's design. It's not only right, it's wise, it's good. He knows what he's doing. But you know what? Some teenagers that grow up in the church, and maybe it'll happen here, God forbid, but it, it may happen here, they're going to know that in their head, and they're still going to sin. That's not okay. But where are they going to turn when they screw up? To the Christians who don't throw showers for sinners? Being safe for sinners doesn't mean we ignore the truth of God's design and his commands and his prohibitions. It means we treat sinners like Jesus treated sinners with lavish, undeserved mercy and grace and love. So we're going to throw a shower for that girl? <laughs> you betcha. Any amens? Okay. If you want to take issue, feel free. Chris.McGarvey at bbcde.org. <laughs> All right. So lots of application beyond crisis pregnancies or women in crisis who are pregnant. Um, this application when we see or smell or hear of mess in the lives of those that God has placed in our lives, like in our path. And the question broader than maybe just, you know, uh, out of wedlock pregnancy is do we run away from or do we move in with love and seek to mediate the grace and the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus to messy sinners? So the church, our church, must be, God give us grace to be safe for sinners. And, and the church, our church, must not be safe for sin. Okay? Point number two, not safe for sin. Sin kills. Why would we make a truce with sin? That would be really dumb. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We can't try, strike a truce with sin. If we are going to love people well, we can't coddle or ignore or minimize or justify or rationalize or turn a blind eye to sin. So to stick with the theme of the morning, abortion is a wicked blight on our nation and basically every nation around the world. Sin in the United States, sin of the United States is particularly egregious. Yesterday marked 49 years since the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision. So for almost 50 years, abortion has basically been on demand in the U.S. Do you know that the U.S. is one of the most dangerous places on earth for an unborn person? So there's a book. I haven't read it yet, but I read some quotes, and it looks really interesting, including this guy's legal background. But Clark Forsyth, a book called Abuse of Discretion, and he's writing about the history of Roe v. Wade and how, um, how little good research went into that decision, surprisingly. Um, so he writes this, the United States is an outlier when it comes to the scope of the abortion right, the right to abortion. The U.S. is one of approximately 10 nations of 195 that allow abortion after 14 weeks of gestation. 
When it comes to allowing abortion for any reason after viability, which would be, you know, 22, 24 weeks, the United States is joined only by Canada and what are the other two? North Korea and China. The U.S. is, did you hear that? The U.S. is one of only four countries in the world that doesn't protect the unborn after viability. Ability to survive outside the womb. And there's no firm consensus, but generally 22 to 24 weeks, though some babies have survived at 21 weeks. Uh, you know, having been birthed at 21 weeks. So you see, like our, it's just in the air, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, right? Romans 1. So Ben and I had some dude time yesterday. We went ice skating down at the Fred Rust Ice Arena down in Newark, okay? It's a good place to go ice skating. It's first time for Ben. And afterward, we're driving through, you know, kind of right near the middle of campus, you know, um, and we drove right past Planned Parenthood, the building on, basically on UD's campus. They're not dumb as far as that location. And I told Ben what they do there, what Planned Parenthood does. And I'm telling you, this has happened multiple times because we have, you know, a few kids. When you tell a child about abortion and what that is, it's like a splash of cold water on your face. Like, try to be indifferent after explaining in its simplicity and just like, whoa. It's a healthy exercise. It's so easy, even for us, if we believe what we believe about these things, it's so easy to live as if this is not happening. Genocide is happening. A million babies are killed in our country every year, roughly. 850,000, 2 million or more, depending on the year. It's happening right down the road. We hardly ever think about it. We hardly ever talk about it. We hardly ever stand up against it. And I'm guilty too. We can, in effect, suppress the truth, the reality of this evil by ignoring it. But we need to speak up about it boldly, prophetically. So, like, it's so easy, you know, in our politically charged culture and environment. I mean, some of us might be like, happy to speak up when the opportunity comes, but some of you may just want to keep the peace and stay silent. We need to lovingly, boldly point out the truth. Somebody's got to stand up in our culture and say that the emperor has no clothes. So let's not be ashamed of being pro-life and not stay silent out of fear of repercussions at work or wherever with some colleague if it comes up. Point out the contradictions. Ask good questions to expose the double standards and the lies and the propaganda and the spin. Speak the truth. So, for instance, okay, um, I'm, I'm just going to run through these quickly because you're not going to remember them and you're not going to be able to write them all down. Um, but just to give a couple examples because we need to get equipped so that we can do this. And I'll just send a link to this article. So there's a guy named Andrew Haslam who has 10 questions for pro-choice people. It's just really helpful. If you grab like two or three of these, and let's say the conversation came up with a family member or a neighbor, a coworker, or whatever, 
asking good questions can help somebody think and maybe even change their minds. I mean, you've read stories about abortion doctors who've been changed and converted. And I read one this week of this guy who's, you know, a huge pro-life advocate after having performed 1,200 abortions. So here he goes. Why is there a double standard at work here in which we stay quiet about abortion while mourning miscarriage? This is for pro-choicers in the world today, out there. So here's what you can do. Say, hey, isn't it weird that like when John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, if you don't know who they are, pop culture icon type people, whatever, okay, when they have a miscarriage at around 20 weeks, everybody's like, oh, sympathy, sympathy, you know, and, you know, they're so sad and... But if that, what is it? If it's unwanted, it's not a baby. It's just tissue. What, why is that? Is that what makes a baby a baby is whether you want it or not? You see, just ask that question. Have somebody wrestle with that. You don't have to, you know, get angry and throw stuff at them. Like, ask a question. There's a double standard. Listen to the language that's used in our culture. This is so typical. Surgical abortions can be done during the first or second trimester and includes procedures like aspiration, used up to 16 weeks after your last period, and dilation and evacuation, usually used if it's been 16 weeks or longer since your last period, according to Planned Parenthood. Aspiration involves a gentle, come on. A gentle suction. Why did they choose that adjective? Either manually or by machine through a tube that goes through the cervix and empties the uterus. Dilation and evacuation involves entering the uterus through the cervix and removing tissue from the uterine lining with a scoop-like surgical instrument, etc. So there's all kinds of double standards, all kinds of like spin and euphemism and prop, like why, why, why this language? Two, why do we fight to save the lives of disabled and premature babies? Isn't it interesting that in the same hospital they could perform a, a life-saving surgery, you know, spina bifida at whatever 20 number weeks, and then down the hall or on another floor dismember and evacuate the same age baby? Three, why are abortion laws based on viability outside the womb? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the equation there? Is it, well, they're, they're totally dependent. They're, they're not independent enough. Well, how independent is a post-delivered baby? <laughs> Still totally dependent. It was just like a certain degree of dependence. Like, how do we determine that? Okay, ask questions. Why is a woman's body, number four, pitted against her babies? The baby's body is not the woman's body. We should care about both those bodies. We should care about both those people. Sometimes the pro-life movement talks in such a way they not really care very much about that woman. So we need to make sure we care a lot about that woman. But there's two people that need to be cared for. Why is it one pitted against the other? Or one just like subsumed it as, this, as if it doesn't even exist. Um, okay, there's 
more. I'll, I'll just pick one more. Why is it acceptable to fight for the rights of animals than unborn humans? Don't say this in a snarky way. Ask it honestly. It is laudable in our culture to battle for animal rights, and it is demonized to battle for, like, baby human rights, pre-born, unborn baby human rights. Like, why is that? And obviously, when does a person become a person and so forth? So we need to be prophetic and bold in the face of the wicked spin, the propaganda that so many have bought and so many sell in America. But let me tie this back into point number one. We also need to realize that there's more than one way to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We can't decry the suppression of truth in unrighteousness out there and all the while suppress it in here. Okay? Sin is not just, you know, the sin of sexual promiscuity. You know, self-righteousness is sin. <laughs> and so is judgmentalism. And so is gossip. And so is slander. So listen, the church being not safe for sin, sins like judgmentalism, and I'm not talking about you can't ever make any judgments. Of course we make judgments. But it's being judgmental is what I'm talking about. So the church being not safe for sin is actually part of how it becomes a safe place for sinners because we, we crucify our self-righteousness. We crucify our judgmentalism. We crucify our cold aloofness, running away from need rather than to it, trying to save our lives, right? So part of being a safe place for sinners means we're making war with and putting off those sins and cultivating in, instead honesty, transparency, confession, repentance, humility, log before the speck, burden-bearing, compassion, sensitivity, not running away from suffering and sin. That's dealing with sin so that we are a safe place for sinners who will then find mercy and grace for forgiveness and cleansing and grace and support to fight their sin by the power of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. So do you see the both andness? Like both and is Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman, right? He didn't sweep her sin under the rug. He exposed it and dealt with it, but in such a gracious, loving way. Everybody else didn't want to be around her, and he had to go and bring grace and truth to her. So, bold with the truth and lavish with love and mercy and grace and compassion. Expose the propaganda and offer the shame covering, guilt removing, forgiveness and cleansing that only Jesus can give. I'm going to end with an illustration by Matt Chandler. Um, so these are his words because of the uh, wonders of transcription in the world. Um, so I'm going to finish with this and then we're going to play this video. Laurie Chapman, uh, I had been texting with her. She's working at a, at a um, pregnancy center. And she was a part of our church family for a long time, faithful member. And she's doing two degrees, finishing up a nursing degree and um, theology and ethics degree. And she's working part-time at a, a pregnancy center. So she shared these stories. They were so encouraging. I said, hey, Laurie, would you please 
Like, would you be willing to share those with our church family? And she put this video together, and we're going to watch that. And then Rachel's going to come up and bleed on us a little bit. Um, the Metzgers were longtime members of Bethel. We love them and miss them. They're at Epiphany now, and thankful that they're one of our partner churches. Um, but thankful that you were willing to come back, Rachel. All right? So end with this illustration, and then we'll go with the video. My, this is Matt Chandler speaking, pastor of a church down in Texas. My life in Christ has not been without some God-ordained irony. I was transplanted to Texas from the Bay Area. My father was military, and they moved us across um, the country. My, father had, or my mother had a deep faith, and my father wanted nothing to do with it. When we moved towards Houston, a young man on the football team began to share the gospel with me. Christ radically redeemed and saved my soul. I became a ferocious evangelist despite the fact that I didn't know anything. It was evident that the Lord had his hand on me. My friends would come to know the Lord, but it didn't take long before my passion for the gospel and to see lost men and women saved started to rub against or collide with the church. And so it wasn't very long, and I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but one that broke the camel's back where I decided that if, that if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman. So he gives this example. This break in me occurred my freshman year of college when I randomly sat next to a 26-year-old single mother coming back to school to try to get her degree. She'd never been to church, didn't know Jesus. We began a dialogue about the grace and mercy of Christ and the cross. Me and some other friends and I would go over and babysit her daughter and try to talk with her. He said she was actually in an extramarital affair at the time, trying to serve her and explain spiritual things to her. And a friend of theirs was in a band playing at a church in the area. We invited her to hear him. She agreed. She thought it would be a concert. They kind of knew better. He said, it's a little shady, okay. But um, she agreed to come. We listened to Robbie play. He was amazing. All right. Then the minister got up and said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And I immediately go, uh-oh. He took a red rose, smelled it, and showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out in the crowd. It's about 1,000 college and high school students told him to smell the rose and touch it and feel the texture. And this is, again, Chandler's words. He said, then he began one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It was fear-mongering at its best. You don't want syphilis, do you? And everyone's, and everyone's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lips. Okay, so this is like the, and I'm thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? And as he wrapped up, he asked, where's my rose? Some kid brought the rose back and it was jacked up, you know, broken. And he lifts it up and this is his big point, his crescendo. He held up the rose and said, who would want this rose? And he said, anger welled up in me and I wanted to say, Jesus wants the rose. Amen. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus wants the rose. For our sake he made him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's like, you're not even teaching the basics of the faith. So he left there and he said, I'm done, I'm out. If this is the game, I don't know how to play it. So he went into itinerant ministry and grew bitter toward the church because the church wasn't a safe place for sinners. And then he says this. Here's, here's the irony. Then as I studied, I became convicted of my ecclesiology, beliefs about the church and the importance of the church. Okay, maybe I should be a pastor. But since I really don't know of a church I can send anyone to, 
I said, we'll plant a church, but not here in Dallas. I'll tell you that right now. We're going to San Francisco or Hong Kong. We're going secular, wicked, can't find an ichthus on a car anywhere kind of place. I gathered a team and talked about what we could do. And in the middle of that, God ended up calling him to, a, to be the pastor of First Baptist Church of Highland Village, Texas. And he's given his life to cultivate a church that's safe for sinners ever since. May we as well. Safe for sinners, not safe for sin. Amen. Play the video, Chad. Hi, beloved Bethel family. I am so excited to see you guys, sort of, to be with you. I miss you and uh, hope to see you soon. But Chris asked me to share a couple of stories from the pregnancy center that I work in. And so I'm going to tell you about Cynthia and Tatiana. Cynthia came in a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't know this when she made the appointment, but God did. And the, the big thing that I didn't know was that Cynthia has a very significant history of trauma in her background. And the client advocate who was supposed to see her had to leave early that day. And so I got to see her as both the nurse and the client advocate, which really was a blessing. Um, the other thing that happened that God just sort of ordained for Cynthia's sake was that the two clients that were scheduled to come in after Cynthia both canceled right before she got there. And so I had plenty of time to spend with her and really listen to what was going on in her life and try to understand why she thought abortion was the best option for her. So one of the things that I typically ask clients is that uh, I ask them, do you have any spiritual beliefs that are helping you in your decision-making process? And Cynthia sort of hemmed and hawed and said, well, I was raised Catholic, but I don't go to church anymore because I didn't want to do that to my kids. So I knew there was probably a story there as well. Um, so I asked her what she thought it meant to be a Christian. And she said, well, I'll tell you what the people that I know who are Christians say, and it's they say, you, know, you shouldn't pray the saints and you shouldn't say bad words and you shouldn't drink and you shouldn't smoke and you got to keep these other rules, but they don't keep the rules either. And I think they're just kind of fake. So, I said, well, do you mind if I tell you what it means to be a Christian? And she said, sure, why not? And so I was able to share the whole gospel with her. Um, and I was able to really focus on the obstacles that she had already told me she had. One was the rules that even the rules that people said they should keep, they couldn't keep. And that there was a sort of a disingenuous genuineness there that she saw through and she didn't like. And so I was able to share with her that she was right. We couldn't keep the rules. She can't keep them and I can't keep them. And those people that she knows, they can't keep them either. Um, but Jesus did and that he came and lived a perfect life, that he was God's provision for us, that he died on the cross for those, all those broken rules, all the bad things that we did. And so she listened very carefully and she was intent on every word. She was hanging so tightly, and I thought I was offending her, but I kept going because she didn't stop me. And so when it was over, I said, has anyone ever talked to you about the gospel this way? And she said, no, this is really good news. And I was kind of surprised that she used that phrase. And 
I said, tell me what you mean. And she said, well, no one's ever talked to me about God like this before. I've always thought of him as some force or some being that was out to catch me doing something bad. But that's not what you're saying. And I said, that's not who he is. And she said, you're talking about God as if he's your friend. And I said, he is. And that's what Jesus calls himself. He says he's our friend and he wants us to think of him that way too. So I got to talk to her about what it means to have Jesus as your friend. And she started to cry. And she said again, this is such good news. I can't believe this is such good news. And she kept saying that phrase. So then she said, I want to know God this way, but I don't know how to pray. And so first we got to talk about praying and then we got to pray. And it, it was a beautiful thing to watch a new baby be born in a pregnancy center. So that was week one when I saw her. I went across the room with her to do her ultrasound and her baby just born faith was tested right away because the ultrasound was not great. And so I, it was inconclusive. I couldn't tell, but I wasn't actually very hopeful about it. And so I had to tell her what I saw and she cried and she was um, concerned, obviously, even though she came in looking for an abortion. I don't think that's what she really wanted to do. She just felt like it was the thing that she had to do. But I watched this young woman brighten up, square her shoulders back, wipe away her tears and say, you know what? I know that God's going to get me through this. And she left the, the office that day transformed. So we made an appointment for her to come back the following week and I got to see her again. And this that was this past week. And she couldn't get another ultrasound because she was still having some complications and I, I medically I couldn't do it. But we did get to talk and so I'm actually hopeful based on a few things so you could pray for Cynthia and her baby. Um, she's going to come back again next week. But we got to talk about her baby faith and so I asked her how's it going. We had given her some materials and some resources to sort of start learning about who Jesus is as a friend. And she said, I'm so glad you asked. I've told my mother, I've told my father, I've told my kids, but I really need some help in learning how to teach my kids because I want them to know the real Jesus. I want them to know Jesus as a friend like you talk about him. And so in one week, she's already told five or six people about Jesus that she just learned about herself the week before. So pray for Cynthia. She's gonna come back again next week. I'm really hopeful that her baby is okay. But even if that's not the case, Cynthia is a brand new believer and God worked in her life and I get to have a front row seat to it. So if you wonder what happens in a pregnancy center, that's the kind of stuff that happens. And then with Tatiana, Tatiana came in with her husband and we don't see too many husbands in the pregnancy center that I work in. Um, it's rare for a client to have a husband and even more rare for the, the husband to come in so her husband was there, but she had gotten pregnant. They did not want to have children. They had discussed it. They had done what was necessary to not have children. And there they were pregnant anyway. And so they were both adamant about ha having an abortion. And so I had to go through the education and the counseling. They didn't want to look at an ultrasound. They didn't want to know about fetal development. They didn't want anything 
any information that was going to potentially cause them to question their decision. And so I found myself praying a lot during that appointment because I didn't know, I didn't know what I could do or what I could say that could possibly even cause them to doubt that this was 100% the right decision. And through the appointment, I learned that the husband was really the driver of that decision. And so I was able to ask Tatiana, why are you considering this now if you don't really want to do it? Because she had said to me, I, I always grew up believing that abortion is a sin. It's just wrong. And so she said, well, it's because if I don't have an abortion, he'll leave me. And I already had one child without a partner and I don't want to do it again. And so I looked at the husband and I said, is that true? And he said, well, and he kind of hesitated and he said, no, I, she knows it's not true. And she said, well, that's what you've been saying all along. And he said, well, I don't, I don't want to have a kid that I can't play with and run around after. And he has an older son from a previous relationship. And I was able to say, if that son comes home and tells you you're going to be a grandfather, are you going to be able to run around with your grandson? And he really had a puzzled look and he didn't really say much, but I think he was thinking about it, but he didn't give me any indication of what was going to happen. Uh, Tatiana didn't really budge from her position. Her husband didn't budge from his position. So they left and I really thought they were just going to go to the abortion clinic. But I followed up with them this past week and I got Tatiana on the phone. She said, I'm so glad you called. I just, I'm, I've been wanting to tell you, we've decided to keep our baby. And I, I was, honestly, I was shocked. And I said, really? What is the difference? What made you make that decision? And she said, well, I realized that I was considering something that I thought was wrong for my husband's sake. And I, I knew that I couldn't live with that decision. And so I, I said, congratulations. It's great. You have, you have made a decision then and you've, you've chosen to keep your baby. That's your choice. Um, and she said, yes, but I want to tell you that your questions that made me really think and maybe even squirm a little bit while we were there were really helpful. It, it helped me realize that I want to go back to the God of my youth. I thought that I didn't, but you asking me those questions about what I believed really made me want to go back to the God of my youth. So she said she wanted to return to her faith that she was raised in. She was raised as a, a believer when she was young and had just walked away. So now she's uh, wanting to renew that faith, and that commitment with Jesus. So pray for Tatiana and their baby and their marriage and that they, they even said to me, this must be a miracle baby because we tried everything to not have this baby. So when people say things like that, I know that God is at work. I know that this is God's work. And I have this immense privilege to sit on the front seat of this wonderful, wonderful stage of watching God do what God does in lives. So pray for these people, pray for a door of hope, um, volunteer when you can, give when you can, um, give sacrificially because this, I tell people that I work in a ministry that is set up a yard from the gate of hell because women walk out of our door and literally make life and death decisions every single day. That is what pregnancy centers do. Thank you guys.
Love you. I miss Lori. Do you miss Lori? Yeah. So I knew this would be a good sermon, too, and I'm glad to be here, uh, Bethel, today, and it's just good to be back, and it feels good, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm really blessed, particularly with Bethel, because you take this day very seriously. Some churches don't, so I'm grateful that Chris, I mean, uh, routinely takes time out to honor this day, so thank you for that. I'm going to I'll be brief, I'll be quick. I want to just take a little bit of a different direction for you um, this year um, because I know, Bethel, that you take this, this subject really seriously. Um, you take it to heart, and I've known that for years. Um, this is a hard, hard topic. Abortion's a hard topic. It needs to be handled with a lot of care, and um, I think one of the reasons why we need to handle it with care is the fact that in the United States, one out of every four women has had an abortion. So by sheer numbers, there's a strong possibility even that someone in this room has either had an abortion or has been complicit in an abortion. And I, I want you to know, as I'm sure Chris does, and Adore of Hope wants to know you to know that people who either have had that in their, in their past or even considering it now, are loved and welcomed at a door of hope and i think hopefully after a sermon like that like this is that you're, you feel welcome here and that ultimately the message of the gospel is a, is a, is a message of forgiveness and reconciliation and um, that's what a door of hope is about and i know that's what bethel is about so if you are one of those people in this room right now i want to know i want you to know that you're loved and cared for and you're important to us um, a door of hope has a whopping seven employees and I'm one of them and I do not see clients and that's a good thing um, in the course of a year though we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women very similar to that story some of them happy stories and some of them dreadful stories and heart-wrenching stories I'm proud of my staff I have a great staff I could not do this work by myself it would be a disaster but we are very aware that we fall short in very many ways um, when it comes to ministering to women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. And I love that Chris caught himself. He caught himself because he, he almost used the word crisis pregnancy center because we used to be known that way and we've ditched that. And I'm glad we've ditched that because there's no crisis pregnancies. Pregnancy is a good thing. There are crisis circumstances and crisis lives who happened to, happened to be pregnant. And we like to make that distinction as much as we can. And so we find ourselves in many, many instances short on resources, short on hands on deck, and in, in, in line with even what Chris Chandler had to say, um, is it Chris? Matt, excuse me, I knew that wasn't right. One of the things in line with what, with what Matt Chandler had to say that I, I, I say heartily to is that I still believe that the church is the best place for women and men in these circumstances, whether you are considering abortion or whether you're recovering from a past abortion, I still believe that the church is the best environment, not a pregnancy care center. We deal with crisis situations, but we are not a place to grow a disciple. We might be able to start a disciple and share the gospel if there's an opportunity, but we are not a church and we are not community. 
as much as we would like to be. And the counseling and ongoing support that a lot of these women needs is far beyond our ability to serve. And that is why it's a big part of my goal as the executive director, as however long God ha uh, has me in this role, is to welcome the church into our ministry and to partnership because I need you very, very badly. Um, and I need you as a safe place, exactly what Chris was talking about, for women in these circumstances. And that's something that we pray about, we talk about at the, at the center, but we realize that this has to be done with a great deal of care because as Lori sort of alluded to, many of the women that come into our center have got, if you will, baggage that is quite heavy and they need to be handled in a discerning and loving way, and that requires training, a lot of training. Um, I, my staff is always in a state of training. Um, it feels like it could never end, but that's a good thing, and we're always learning, and I'm always learning. And so one of the things I wanted to challenge you all today is to think about yourselves as a church and an individual in the church and how God might be able to use you individually or the church individually. But I kind of want to give us a little bit of a reality check, and I hope this doesn't offend you. I, I knew this church would be safe and want to listen to this. So real briefly, I know we're getting close to noon. I would like to just share with you a study that was done about five years ago. I'm going to show you a few statistics um, that was done on what we call post-abortive women. So these are women who, are, who have had abortions in the past. And they were asked questions about the church. And one of the interesting things that this study found was that one in three women, the one in three women that surveyed, were actively attending church when they obtained an abortion. That's 33% of those women. They were attending church at least once a month, which is considered a regular attender. So that means they made that decision under the care of something pastoral or in a church environment. So the, the next one is, though, the, and it, it begs the question, did, did they come and talk to the church? Did it even dawn on them to come and talk to someone in their church, whether it be a pastor or, or, or a lay leader? And we found out that those women who had those abortions uh, said that they were most likely to discuss their decision to terminate their pregnancy, who in other words, who they sought counsel from in that decision, primarily, and this shouldn't be too terribly shocking to you, the father of the baby is by and large the biggest influencer in a woman's, woman's decision. We see it anecdotally at, at a door of hope constantly, but it's just verified here that the person with the biggest influence and plays the biggest factor in a woman's decision is not her, as much as the pro-abortion movement would like you to think it's her, that she's a very sovereign person, but nine times out of ten is very much the influence of the biological father. Um, and four out of ten so this higher, said that the, the father was by far the biggest factor in the decision they made, whether his refusal to help or his pressure to do something. Another person that we see is also a big factor is, is mom. And we've, we've counseled with a lot of moms. You think it's dad, but it's actually mom a lot. Um, and if you ever want to know about that, I can give you some insight into that as well. Uh, the next one is um, 
this is, and this is the kicker, and this is, this is alluding to what Chris has to say about half of those women who had an abortion agree that a pastor's teaching on forgiveness don't apply to terminated pregnancies, right? That's the misunderstanding of the gospel and not understanding that, that, that sinners are, are remedied and this is a hospital for sinners here, okay? And that's a, some of it because they've never been in church or because what they've heard in a church setting has not alluded to God's forgiveness in a biblical way. Uh, the next one, over half of women who've had an abortion agree, and this is a big one, that churches tend to oversimplify decisions about why women have abortions. And this is a big thing that we see at A Door of Hope when we talk to, I guess you'd say, people in the pro-life movement or people who support us, who, by the way, I, I adore and love. Um, I think a lot of times our, our view on the abortion-minded women is very much formed by politics and not by reality. And one of the things that's really important for us at A Door of Hope is that you understand is that even though abortion is always a bad choice and always wrong, the reasons why women make abortions are complicated, nuanced, and often in very gray area. And even though we hear essentially the same story over and over again, it always has a different element to it. And so one of the things that we've had to learn to be is listeners more than anything. And you would be surprised. You can see even what Lori told you. That was a lot of just listening, right? It wasn't like we get in this big argument, right? It was a lot of listening, a lot of empathy, and a lot of concern and care. In fact, that's our theme this year at Adore of Hope is concern, compare, uh, concern, care, and compassion. A lot of compassion because we see women who have been raped. We've seen women who are being abused. We see addicts. Often we've met also with a number of women who are either presently being trafficked or are coming out of being trafficked. And their life is in crisis and it's complicated. And, and as, as the church develops their understanding of women who are abortion-minded, I, I urge you to pull back on the oversimplification and understand that these situations are complicated, right? But the gospel can minister even into the most complicated life. But it takes commitment and it also takes training. Because where the church could do wonders to empathize with this, they also do a lot of damage if we're not clear about where these women are coming from and the circumstances that they find themselves in a lot. Next one is, twice as many women would not recommend to someone close to them that they discuss their decision regarding an unplanned pregnancy with someone in a local church. Now, that's a perception that's either well-informed or it's not. But nonetheless, in, in sharing this with you, this is not to to browbeat the church on the contrary. It's to help you to see that there's a challenge out there for the church, especially here in the United States, to minister to these women who have a lot of doubt, okay, a lot of cynicism about how the church could help them. I think there's another one that's going to come up. So, so I like to give you the bad news before the good news, because whenever I have one of my staff comes in and says to me, you want to hear the bad news or the good news, I always pick the bad news first, because then the good news makes me feel a little bit better. But that's the bad news. But there's, there's good news that came out of this study as well. 
when they surveyed, surveyed the same women who are post-abortive, who identified as being evangelical, their attitude towards the church changed significantly. Um, and I, I'll throw some of these. It's, uh, however, self-identifying, particularly evangelical Christians, have the most favorable view of the church's potential role in helping them. Um, 71% um, said that uh, a pastor is a safe person to talk to about an abortion. 76% um, of women who are evangelical said pastors teach that God's willing to forgive past abortion uh, decisions. Okay, that's encouraging. There's another one. There's a lot up there. 70% um, of women who, who identified as evangelical said that churches are a safe place to talk about pregnancy options. Churches give accurate advice about pregnancy options. And that churches are prepared to provide material, emotional, and spiritual support. All of them, except for the um, one about accurate advice, we, there's still a little bit of an issue there, but by and large, overwhelmingly agreed that the church could be a safe place. And that should be encouraging to you, Bethel, and, and, and individually to know that there's still hope there and there's still opportunity for the church to be this safe place for sinners. So before I leave, I just first want to thank you. I know a lot of you are regular supporters of Adore of Hope, and Bethel has been in the future, and our baby bottle benefit is going to be coming up again in April, um, so don't forget about that. But I, w I have a resource table out, out in the lobby if you want to take a look at it. But I do have this one thing, if you want to consider it prayerfully, is that, as I said about making this a safe place for women, um, but taking the time to learn, um, the same organization that did that study does have a curriculum for churches and individuals who would like to be trained on ministering to either women who are making abortion decisions or are post-abortive to create a safe place for them here in the church. And uh, I'll tell you, you would do a great service to Adore of Hope if you as a church or you as an individual would be willing to go through this training called Making Life Disciples. It's a six-part series um, so that you, you, you heal lead to healing instead of inflicting greater harm, which I know this church is, is about and committed to. So if this is interesting to you, even as an individual, or if you feel that you are moved and even interested in perhaps helping a door of hope with client advocacy, that the work that's similar to what, what Lori is doing, we do have a training program. It's six months long. It's, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's a blessing, and, and you get to participate in neat opportunities like that as well. So we're looking for client advocates. They're a volunteer position um, at Adore of Hope. And if that interests you, please, please grab me afterwards. But I'm going to pray. Okay. And then I think Chris is going to come up and dismiss you. So let me just pray. Gracious God, I, I just praise you and thank you for um, this this morning because it's it's an encouragement to me and um, I hope it's an encouragement to everyone here that you are um, a God who rescues the lost and redeems them back to yourself and there is no uh, sin or uh, transgression that you cannot heal and restore. So I pray for Bethel. I pray that they would be a safe place for sinners, but that they would stand firm in their conviction on what sin is. I pray for a door of hope that you would do the same for us and continue to provide us with the resources we need 
to fight this fight and to do good in our community. And I pray for the Pregnancy Care Center that Lori is serving in, um, in a different state, Lord, that I'm just so encouraged to know that the stories that we see day to day at Adore of Hope are happening all over this country. We don't lose heart even when the news screams something quite different. We thank you that you're working and that you are loving and caring for us in, your, in, in, in unique ways. And we pray that you would continue to protect the unborn and just the sanctity of all human life from birth to the grave that even on today's like to, on a day like this we think about other human uh, concerns whether it be for the aged for the mentally challenged for um, the the outcast and um, uh, for prisoners people who um, a lot of people don't value their lives uh, you value every life you died for every life we pray Lord that um, today on this day we would keep um, that close to our hearts and in, in prayer to you regularly throughout the year. Um, and it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We are thankful for Door of Hope. Um, the church needs a Door of Hope. Yeah, that's right. Thankful that you all exist, and um, we can't do what they do, so we're thankful that Door of Hope exists, and as Rachel mentioned, Door of Hope needs us as well. So we need each other, and we all need Jesus, and we need his grace if we are gonna be um, people who create a culture and environment in the church here that is safe for sinners, even though it's not safe for sin.